Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because I am talking to an ecologist who studies an amazing group of plants and their wonderfully interesting pollination ecology. Joining us from Mary Baldwin University is Dr. Mary Jane Epps, and she, among other things, studies azalea pollination. It is far more complex and dynamic than I ever imagined, and for such a charismatic and well-loved group of plants, there's almost nothing known about them in terms of their reproductive ecology, but Dr. Epps is working to change that. I don't want to steal any of her thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mary Jane Epps. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Mary Jane Epps, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome, but first, for anyone that is not aware of your work, tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Oh, well, um, hello, everybody, and, and thank you so much for having me on Indefensive Plants. I'm uh, very excited to, to be here. Um, so I am really a natural history nut, uh, born and raised, and um, I just have been excited about all different groups of organisms, uh, often typically with a, with a core focus on plants, but actually, you know, it's, it's funny because in, uh, in the course of my education, there's so much pressure to specialize, mm. um, you know, specialize, specialize. And, I was interested in so many different things. And for a while I thought I wanted to specialize in mosses. And then I took an entomology course and got really interested in that. And then I um, started learning about fungi and got really interested in those. Um, and so basically in the end, I just couldn't help myself and became a hopeless generalist, um, <laughs> uh, otherwise known as, uh, in my case, an ecologist. Yes. Um, so, so I work on interactions among a bunch of different species. Uh, so I've done a lot of fungal insect interactions, um, uh, plant uh, insect interactions, and I just am fascinated by you know, things that I can observe out in nature and just wonder about and then look into more and hopefully figure something, figure out something cool about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so a lot of my science really springs from just going on walks in the woods and noticing something and thinking about something and, and then, you know, pondering it more and going back and, and actually maybe designing a study around it and collecting data. That is beautiful. Music to my ears. And I think I've heard a lot of people define ecology in some form or another, but hopeless generalist to me <laughs> is the best. I think you win. <laughs> and I've been at this for a while, so kudos. That's amazing. But I think a lot of people listening, myself included, can empathize with that in some way where you just are very worried about getting siloed into this narrow thing where you have to become more and more of a specialist on even tinier fractions of whatever system it is that originally excited you. But you are living proof that really, if you love the natural world, ecology is perfect because it is that interaction. Once you start looking at one thing, you're like, oh, it does that over there and it's interacting with that over there. And the, the world's your oyster. I mean, there's no other way to say it. 
<laughs> yep, it's so true. And everything is so interconnected and, and uh, um, in ways that really we're still just scratching the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg in understanding. Um, and so it's, it's really, I always try, try to tell my students, um, it's, it's so easy to find things that nobody knows about yet. <laughs> um, the hard part is just recognizing them as such. Uh, you know, growing up, you know, you always think, oh, anything I observe is something that's already totally well documented and everything. And one of the big lessons for me as, you know, as I sort of embarked on my scientific career and throughout was that really so many of these observations that we make as naturalists are not necessarily understood. And there's so much more to learn about all of it. So. Totally. That is something I like to parrot time and time again, is that there's far more unknowns than knowns in the scientific world, especially when it comes to natural history. And often the most common species around us are the least understood because everyone, I think, kind of operates under a similar assumption. Well, that's goldenrod in a ditch. Easy, low-hanging fruit. We must have figured everything out about goldenrod. No. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I find rare species fascinating and rarity fascinating, but one of my favorite things is to look at common species um, because there are so many things going on with them that um, really we just don't understand it all yet. Totally. Um, and, and, you know, one can, you can learn, there's lots to learn even about a dandelion in the backyard. Uh, all of these <laughs> All of these species have their own stories and and different interactions and and things that can surprise us. So that's that to me that is one of the things that just gets me so excited about doing science and and being a nature nut. Yeah, and at the heart of it, I mean, something else you said that really excites me is just get out and observe. And I again, I'm a broken record on that. Is it's the most valuable thing you can do because oftentimes in academia you're at the computer writing grants, writing code, trying to get some stats done, but it it robs you of the experiences that make you go, huh, I wonder why that's happening. And I realize that is often the limitations of that career path, but I think the science is so much better when you get curious about it because you want to know those answers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's a hard thing to balance is, okay, you have to have the time at the computer and, and you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, but yeah, at the core of it, I think most of us in this field got into it because we loved running around in the woods and observing and thinking about things. Totally. Um, and so it's, it's so important to spend as much time out in nature as you <laughs> Whether whether or not you are a um, you know uh, whether or not you are a career scientist or somebody doing a totally different profession who just likes to go on walks in the woods. Totally. I mean, I think the whole iNaturalist citizen science bent of phone apps and stuff like that has really taught us the power of the the average person just going out, whether this is your career or not. Just go outside, take pictures, record it. You never know what is unique or valuable to someone else. Yeah, everyone can contribute in really profound ways sometimes to science and, and scientific discovery. Absolutely. Wonderful. And so the reason I reached out to you and, and something I've known about uh, your work for a while now is some of the work you've done on azaleas and azalea population, uh, azalea pollination, sorry. 
But I will not forget the first time I read your work on azalea pollination because it was really when I was starting to finally see a lot of azalea species flowering in the wild going, oh my gosh, these shrubs that I thought were only cultivated have this wild natural history place in the ecology out there. And then you see all of these insects visiting them thinking like, oh, they must have this massive generalist pollination syndrome. Turns out uh, it might not be the case. So what got you attracted to azaleas in the first place to even start looking at what's going on? Yeah, so I actually got involved in this project um, really in graduate school when I was doing my dissertation on something completely different. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And um, I... uh, was working at Mountain Lake Biological Station in Southwestern Virginia, which is a lovely, lovely spot. It's high elevation. And I was actually working on mushroom beetle interactions at the time that my dissertation was on. Um, Little teeny, weeny, weeny, weeny little beetles. um, (laughs) Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. Oh, sweet. Good sample (laughs) Yes. While I was looking at at mushrooms and beetles, uh, up at my field site, there were these amazing displays of flame azalea Mm. uh, rhododendron calendulaceum and this is one of the dominant shrubs in the understory at my field sites and so you know i'd be you know going along trying to focus on my dissertation work um (laughs) and getting distracted by these amazing plants all around me and so i started wondering you know looking at these plants like, like you said before, you notice all of these different insects coming to the flowers, right? There's this whole array of, of different species um, buzzing and flapping around the flowers. So yeah, at first glance, you'd think that they were total generalists. Um, but while I was up there, I, um, two other, well, one other researcher and one uh, undergraduate student at the time, um, so Lauren Wolf and Suzanne Allison was was then the undergraduate. Um, Lauren had done some work on flame azaleas in the past up at that site, and um, Suzanne was actually taking a class that he was teaching up there. And <laughs> one of the neat things about biological field stations is the mealtime conversations. Uh, I mean, it's really one of my favorite things because you never know where conversation will lead you. And so this project really came out of hanging out with those three and at a mealtime and thinking about flame azaleas and talking about this and starting to wonder, well, you know, what's, what's going on here. And then we did some sort of pilot observations and then it got sort of more and more interesting. And then we got more and more interesting. And, um, anyway, it ended up, it was a total side project, not related to my other dissertation work, but it was, it was one of my favorite parts of, of, of one of my favorite things to come out of graduate school. Um, that's incredible. And it's a, you know, a real illustration of, you're a hard worker, but a passionate worker at that, because I don't know a lot of grad students, myself included, that were willing to just go off of the beaten path and say, I'm going to do the side project while I'm at it. (laughs) So well done. But I mean, two really good examples there is a azaleas are not unknown, right? I mean, they're well cherished, both native and exotic. Horticulture has done a ton with them. They hybridize readily. There's a ton out there. And B, they're not uncommon on the landscape. So here's another example of like, how do we, how, how did it take that long for us to go like, oh, 
all these things might not actually be effective pollinators. I mean, to me, that's amazing uh, and illustrates well the kind of points that we were talking about just a little bit ago. Yeah, it's it's shocking, really. And the more I, you know, as I got into this project, um, <clears throat> you know, I did uh, work on flame azalea starting in in grad school and then, you know, uh, finishing up that that first paper, expanding on it um, afterwards, and I came to find out that basically nobody had done any real pollination biology to speak of wow. on the native azaleas in the eastern U.S. so that I could find anything on, which was just crazy yeah, because yeah, there everybody in horticulture loves azaleas. There's, I mean, there's such a known plant. And, and they're also so showy, right? Yeah. It, so you, you tend to, we tend to assume that the lit, it's the little nondescript plants that sort of go overlooked and, and have kind of the mysteries and the big showy stuff that especially that's used in the horticultural trade, et cetera, is, is everything's going to be all figured out already. And there's just, it's kind of, it's kind of a blank slate. It was amazing. Huh. <laughs> that's cool <laughs> i mean from the person that did the literature review i mean that is about as exhaustive as it can possibly get and yeah i mean it is wild to me that even not one other species could have given you a hint and and to me i wonder if you think in the similar vein here is you know you see a lot of things visiting those flowers if you spend time around azaleas they're not unnoticed by the insect community. So I wonder if people just kind of fell back on the, eh, well, generalist, whatever. And it's this realization that not everything that visits a flower is a good pollinator. Exactly. And there was a common convention in a lot of pollination literature where, so always a challenge in, in pollination biology is distinguishing the flower visitors from the <laughs> actual pollinators, right? Because all sorts of things visit flowers, but which of those visitors are actually doing the pollination? And there are various different methods that pollination biologists have used to try to answer that question. Um, and one of the most common ones, uh, at least for a while, was to... Um, for, for large scale ecological studies was to classify any visitor as a pollinator if it was observed to make contact with either the anthers, right? The male reproductive organs or the stigmas, the female reproductive organs, hmm. but not necessarily both. And so what we, what was so surprising to us in the flame azalea situation was there were a number of different insects that would come in and make contact with the anthers, collect tons of pollen, or other insects that would make contact with the stigma, but really the only species that we saw reliably making contact with both anthers and stigmas, as is needed for pollination, even on subsequent visits, were big butterflies. Wow. Um, and so that was really surprising. And, you know, I should say... Um, this work, we focused on uh, really one study area. <laughs> and so there, you know, it's a big range to flame azalea. Uh, and so while the story is what it, you know, what we found appears to be what we found up at Mountain Lake area, there may be other butterfly species and such playing a bigger role in other hmm. populations. Um, maybe some areas, maybe there's some big bumblebees that can play more of a role. I don't know. Nobody knows. 
Um, wow. But, you know, that's just something I wanted to kind of remind people. It's so easy to think when a study is done that this is sort of universal <laughs> for the whole species. And of course, that's, you know, we don't know that at all, right? Yeah. This was one location. Um, it seems to be a common pattern, but uh, there may be other things going on in other places, right? Um, just as true. there may be other things going on in other azalea species. Um, and in fact, there are. So I've, I've since the flame azalea work, I've, I've been branching out into some of the other azalea species. Ooh. And um, there's some different things going on there, actually. <laughs> Exciting. And before we jump into that, I, I do want to kind of make a note of sort of the anatomy of the flower, which might have given some indication that maybe not everything is, is as it seems there. And that's something that your work actually helped me appreciate is looking at the floral anatomy. And it is one thing to have this big showy corolla nectar at the base of that. But in most of the rhododendron genus that I'm aware of, at least on the East Coast, the anthers and the stigma come way out of way. So it's actually effort to to visit either of those organs, let alone both in tandem, right? Exactly. So that was a big clue that really got us thinking about wing pollination. So when we started observing these flower visitors and trying to document, okay, which species are making contact with the anthers, which species are making contact with the stigmas. And we would see, so for example, the most common flower visitor to the flame azaleas at our study site was this little uh, native bee that's actually an azalea specialist, uh, called Andrina Corneli. Um, and this little Andrina bee, it was so efficient. It would go up to these flame azalea flowers and do this little, it would land on the style, which is the stalk on which the stigma is perched. And it would do this little shimmy with its <laughs> legs and gather all of the stalks oh. of the stamens um, you know, the pollen bearing organs, and it would shimmy up the style, gathering all of the stamens in this little bouquet. And then it would go around systematically and strip all of the pollen out of the anthers. Meanwhile, the stigma is elevated farther out. And so it would, it was underneath the stigma, but separated by a good centimeter or so usually. And so it wouldn't, you know, we never observed it really making contact with the stigma. I mean, I'm wow, sure every wow. once in a while one bumps into it, but yeah, it turns out this bee was primarily a pollen thief hmm. uh, rather than a mutualist. And that's another, actually, that brings up another point. One other common method that pollination biologists often use to score a visitor species as pollinators is how much pollen of the target plant, a different different insect or animal species carry on their bodies. So by just looking at the pollen load carried on these insects, it would seem like this Andrina bee was really the champ and doing much of the work. Whereas in fact, that wasn't at all the case. So um, again, you know, the closer you look, uh, the more, well, it's again, I should say it is worth taking a closer look. <laughs> yeah, that is a really cool idea to bring up and a great set of data to kind of go with it is you hear about specialization in pollination. You think of this mutualism, this coevolution, where if you get a specialist, 
It's got to be on that flower and that flower definitely depends on it. But this is a perfect example that a specialist doesn't always benefit the species that it's specializing on. In fact, when you consider pollen is not a continually produced thing when a flower opens, it's it might even be detrimental. Absolutely. And it turns out, at least at our study site, the insect that we found to be the primary pollinator by far of flame azaleas was the tiger swallowtail, which is a well-known nice. generalist. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nature will always surprise you. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to speak a little more your, to your question relating to the flower structure, um, because that was, that's a really good point. So in the flame azalea, the petals are kind of curved and there's this very nice handy landing platform um, that butterflies can land on very easily. And then the actual reproductive parts are exerted a good, I don't know, like inch and a half or so maybe outside of the mouth of the flower. And so what we were seeing time and time again is the small bodied species that were going after nectar would just often bypass the reproductive parts entirely. Um, you know, they just fall down into the tube of the flower and drink their fill and go off without ever making contact with, with anything important as far as the plant was concerned. Uh, but with those long exerted flower parts, butterflies, you know, they can land on that landing platform and then their flapping wings, we noticed mm. were what was actually making contact with the anthers and stigmas, which was another exciting element of the project because, you know, wing pollination was a largely overlooked mode of pollination at that time. And butterflies also are really often considered widely to be just crummy pollinators. <laughs> uh, you know, people are people think the bees do all the work and the butterflies are just kind of these pretty little things that flutter around and look nice, but don't really actually do much for the plant. And, you know, that may be the case for some species, I'm sure. I mean, it yeah. certainly is, but uh, not the case for uh, the flame azalea and, and various other other plant species. So that was that was fun. <laughs> I love that. And I there's a few orchids I think that would beg to differ as well, but I digress. A number of plants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love that though, because it, it gives a hint at something going on in the evolution of those flowers. I mean, not necessarily a smoking gun, because evolution rarely works that way, but when you think of the length of the reproductive organs, the size of the corolla, its position, and then what you've stumbled upon and reported on it starts to make a little bit more sense why they look that way. Exactly. And so that is something that since doing the initial project on flame azalea that I've become really interested in is trying to learn more about the biology of wing mediated pollination mm. by butterflies. And so since that work, there have been several other plant species that have been found to engage in wing pollination. Um, there's a group in South Africa, uh, that has found, um, several plants there, uh, a couple different genera, at least mm. I think that engage in wing pollination. And again, similar floral structure, right? This landing platform, yeah. the long exerted flower parts. 
Um, and actually, since that work, I've started working on some of the native lilies, which vary in their floral morphology. There are a number of lilium species, uh, but some of these have these recurved petals with long exerted flower parts that seem like a natural candidate for wing pollination. And other lilies have this trumpet shape hmm. petal arrangement that looks like it would not be as suited for wing pollination. And so the last last summer and this summer, I've actually been looking at, at some of the lilies and trying to think about, okay, have there been, to what extent have there been these evolutionary shifts in pollination strategy that have correlated with these two main modes of flower organization? That is so exciting. And I have some photos to send you. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, goody. <laughs> yeah. I was up on the Blue Ridge Parkway taking pictures of a nice Turk's cap lily population. And there were some swallowtail butterflies dangling on the bottom. And they have really nice brown patches of pollen on their wings. Yep. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's what I was looking awesome. at all last summer. Great. It's so great. I mean, it's so funny seeing a butterfly come in uh, to one of these lilies. And then, like, it'll be a fairly pristine looking butterfly it'll come to a flower and then by the time it leaves it looks like a little kid that got into their cheetos bag <laughs> <laughs> it's so covered with pollen on its wings so me it looked like me as a child <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of us yeah that's incredible and i love how again this natural history observation is leading to some really exciting ideas not in just pollination biology but the evolution of floral structure something that every human whether we realize it or not have been conned into appreciating on some level exactly <laughs> that is so cool and so you know you've mentioned sort of the or hinted at at least the struggle in pollination biology and that is something that every pollination biologist i've talked to before says these aren't easy studies to do so what did it take to really go from A to B to C on knowing for sure that these butterflies were doing everything needed to pollinate the shrub. Yeah. So we ended up actually trying to collect several different lines of evidence to test our hypothesis. So first, you know, when we started out with just this initial question, okay, what's doing the pollination on this species? And so we did some initial observations. We looked at, okay, what flower visitors are making contact with the anthers, which ones with the stigmas, and which actually can make contact with both, even on subsequent visits. And when we did those observations, you know, we were pretty astonished to see that really it was just these big butterflies that were making contact with the anthers and the stigmas at our, at our study site. Wow. And so then you know, with science, you start with one question, then it opens the door to another question that opens the door <laughs> to another question. I mean, it's just the way it goes, right. um, of course. And so then we wanted to kind of try to confirm that hypothesis that butterflies are really doing the bulk of the pollinating. And so to that end, we set up a field experiment. Um, and so we had different size uh, mesh excluding pollen or excluding flower visitors from different clusters of flame azalea flowers. Wow. So on a given plant, 
right? A given flame azalea, it's this little tree slash big shrub. Um, it's got lots of these balls of, of many flowers sort of all over the plant. And that was really handy um, experimentally because we could apply each of four different treatments on a single plant and replicate that on lots of different plants. So we had one treatment where we just left the flowers open to anything that wanted to visit. Um, so we basically just flagged a little flower cluster and left it alone. <laughs> and then we had another treatment where we did the opposite. We covered the flowers in a mesh bag so that no flower visitors could access the flowers. And then we had a third treatment, which was we covered the flower clusters with a basically a chicken wire cage. I do very high tech stuff. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so we had these, you know, this sort of extra large hole chicken wire, like two inch holes or whatever. And we made these little balls and kind of suspended them around uh, these <laughs> branch tips around these flower clusters um, so that the flowers were suspended in the middle of that. And what that did is that it allowed open access to the smaller bodied visitors, mm. but it restricted access to, by the largest flower visitors, um, which in our case, um, from what we had observed at the study site were big butterflies. Nice. Um, I should mention, I think probably hummingbirds might occasionally yeah. be something at some populations. Sure. During the time of our study, we didn't really see many of them around at all. Since then, I've seen a couple flyby passes by hummingbirds. So they probably might be able to pollinate some. Yeah. We don't know. Um, but the vast majority clearly seems to be the big butterflies, at least in the areas I've looked at. <laughs> but anyway, so then we had another treatment with a hand-pollinated uh, set of flowers. Um, so we took pollen from another plant and actually put it on the stigmas of our target plant. And then we, you know, we set all these up, we let them do their thing. And then we came back at the end of the season Wow! and looked at fruit set. And so that hand pollinated treatment, the goal of that was to say, okay, what is fruit set look like in these plants if they've had maximum pollination success. Mm. Right? So that's kind of our benchmark for the best possible pollination. Um, and what we saw was that the flower clusters that were covered with the chicken wire, so that excluded only the largest bodied visitors that of which we observed just big butterflies at the time, um, that had almost total failure in fruit set. Wow. Um, I think it was something like two little puny fruitlets out of 72 flowers set. Huh. Fruit. And it was statistically, it was no different from the treatment that we'd excluded everything. That's wild. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. It, 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 you know, in science, it's very rare that your experiments really work the way you want them to the first time. Ugh. And that was like my one time yeah. as a scientist where I had this <laughs> idea and I did it and it actually worked. Um, I just like got... I was, 
which never ever happens. I just got clean data envy <laughs> just yeah. hearing that. Uh, well, well, don't worry. I've had most of the other kind. <laughs> okay, good. You're, you're still an ecologist at the end of the day. We only know messy data. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Amazing. So that was, you know, we were really excited about that because it it was, you know, really strong support that, okay, these smaller bodied visitors that we still saw going in and foraging on the flowers inside the chicken wire cage, they really don't contribute that much to fruit set. Little thieves. Um, yeah, little thieves, exactly. Um, whereas the, the butterflies really, really do um, do the bulk of the work. Wonderful. I absolutely love the temporal dynamic and the fact that all of this was done on a budget. I mean, that speaks to so many different things of like, A, you have to be willing to be creative, right? Use some chicken wire, use some screen. It's not always high tech, multi-million dollar experiments out on the landscape. Most of the time it's not. But the other side of it too is understanding you're working with natural systems and the ability to like go out, observe the pollination stuff, do the exclusionary experiments, do them enough that you have statistical reference, but then to come back time and count seeds. I mean, that is a lot of labor to go in and find, you know, what ended up being a really awesome study, but you never know going into it if all of that effort is going to be for naught. Absolutely. I mean, I will say we sort of... I mean, when we started this project, we had no idea that it would end up being this interest as interesting as it was. Mm. Um, you know, we we sort of started as just kind of this. So we started as being just curious about this plant that we were observing around us, and it's like, okay, well, let's let's look at it a little closer. And then we did some of those initial insect observations. And then it's like, huh, okay, that looks unusual. That's kind of odd. Let's do another, let's, <laughs> let's look at this a little more closely. Um, and then, you know, that opens other questions. And so, you know, we had time to kind of think about it and, and, uh, you know, we went back a couple years later actually and got, and did the exclusion experiment. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, that was not, you know, the initial field season, we didn't think about that. That was something I thought about later. It's like, Oh, you know, we should do this. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the study had various different components that different ones of us, uh, between me and my collaborators thought of at different times. Hmm. And so over, I guess, a, I think it was three field seasons total, oh, wow. um, two or three, that, you know, gradually we accumulated sort of more of the story. Um, and I love that. It's a good yeah. behind the scenes for people to hear because I, I even fall into it. I figured this was all one field season. Like you just really were gung ho. You didn't sleep at all. But yeah, I mean, this is stuff that if you want to build a case, you got to get the clues together. And the more clues you have, the stronger that case becomes, especially in ecology. But it turns out you had some really good data to work with on this one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We, we lucked out. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were, I mean, one of the things that I liked about this study is that we got to do lots of different, different aspects to try to test our hypothesis in lots of different ways, which that's always what you want in science, yeah. right? The, the best supported hypotheses are the ones that have multiple independent lines of evidence supporting the same conclusion. 
And I mean, one of my favorite things as a scientist, just creatively is to try to think up goofy sometimes ways <laughs> of like, okay, well, how else might I be able to answer this question? And hmm. uh, I mean, we were doing ridiculous things like um, holding flowers on long sticks up to butterflies at different points and right some things work and some things totally don't sure. i mean <laughs> there were all sorts of of things that we tried that were a total bust but uh <laughs> that's that's the nature of the nature of these projects true but at all steps of the way you were hanging out with azaleas and that's not a bad day <laughs> It is. Oh my goodness. It was the cushiest field work. I mean, <laughs> it's at 4,000 feet elevation. So I think the, for a while it's changed now, of course, but for a while, the record high temperature up there was something like 84. Oh, geez. Um, uh, and you know, just sort of traipsing along in this beautiful mountaintop full of these with the understory full of these amazing little orange fireballs of these plants uh, and watching these flapping butterflies flit around them. <laughs> so sometimes it is what everyone in my family pictures were doing out there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. Amazing. And so, yeah, not even to stop and think that like flame azalea is amazing in and of itself, but Along eastern North America, especially as you start going south southeast, the diversity of azaleas just goes through the roof. And I, I'm really happy that, you know, it's it's great to have such success with this work and and have such amazing findings, but you're very hesitant, as any good scientist should be, to really start overreaching with the conclusions. And the fact that you hinted at this is one species in one area. The same species in a different area could be doing different things, let alone all of the other species in the genus Rhododendron. And just that diversity alone starts making me scratch my head and go, what else could be going on? Because it can't be the same story for every one of them. Exactly. And so that that is the question that really spurred uh, a lot of further work for me in the last few years. Nice. And so since the initial flame azalea work, I've done some additional work on flame azalea, but also have branched out to look at um, the pinkster azalea, which is a lower Ooh. elevation species. Yeah. Um, very common, uh, much loved, and nobody had ever looked at the pollination, of course. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. And also the swamp azalea, um, which also grows up at Mountain Lake. Um, and it's handy because all of these azaleas, or those three anyway, bloom at different times. So <laughs> I was actually able to work on all three of them sequentially in the same season Sweet. with non-overlapping blooming times or barely overlapping bloom times, uh, which was very convenient. Yeah, that's <laughs> it awesome. It doesn't usually work out that way. <laughs> but yeah, so with the swamp azalea, uh, so rhododendron viscosum, that was a really interesting one. I'm still working on, on the plant and trying to really figure out what's going on with it. But so that is a plant that has, unlike flame azalea, uh, the swamp azalea has white flowers, um, that are a little bit smaller mm. and heavily scented. Mm. 
And the flower parts are not quite as far exerted from the mouth of the flower, although they're still a little, you know, they still sure. stick out, but not as strongly as Flamazelia. And so, you know, I was thinking, ooh, white flower is a really strong scent that you can smell from meters away. It's like, well, maybe this one is doing the same thing, but with moth pollination. And so, you know, I had this, I had this idea that it was like, you know, wing pollination by moths and specialists on that. And um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you can probably tell where I'm going here, but uh, surprise, surprise. Um, I waltzed in thinking I would know the answer and I was totally wrong. Yoink. <laughs> oh, <Yep>. nature. <laughs> so, um, it, it is surprisingly that species appears to be a total generalist. Wow. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of flower visitors that at, again, at our field site anyway, that come to the flowers and make contact with anthers and stigmas, right? Huh. There's something pollination that goes on. Um, and, uh, we have some evidence that, that some wing pollination goes on with moths. It's been challenging to get those data because moths flap their wings so hard and <laughs> it's hard to get sort of slow motion camera work when there's no light. <laughs> I <laughs> can working, imagine working with a red light, which <laughs> doesn't attract the insects. And, but we're, you know, we've, we've gotten some, uh, my students last summer, um, managed to get a couple intriguing video clips that suggested that, or that showed, um, the wings making contact with nice. Uh, some of the flower parts, but definitely lots and lots and lots of moths come to the flowers, but, um, and, you know, certainly do make contact with anthers and stigmas, but there's this whole contingent of day flying organisms that huh. come as well and appears to pollinate. So, uh, I've been trying to do an experiment for two years running now to compare pollination success by day flying versus night flying species and did an absurd amount of work, had these, you know, worked with my students to get up at dawn and then be out there at like nine 30 at night and bagging and unbagging these different <laughs> treatments. And <laughs> yeah, let's just say it's not there yet. <laughs> Noted. So, so, you know, that, you know, that, that, study of the exclusion study with the flame azalea how that worked so well uh, payback. <laughs> worked so well the big problem with swamp azalea is that it is highly self-fertile which oh. flame azalea is not so the first time i did the experiment when i was you know when we were bagging and unbagging these flowers it turns out we were actually pollinating them by removing <laughs> the bags. bag pollination <laughs> it's a new system yeah oh my god so anyway Oops. um i haven't totally sorted that out yet i i we we did it again and carefully snipped off all of the anthers as the flowers opened but then had another problem so yeah <laughs> but that study what i did um <clears throat> what i did find is that um you know there's there's we have a problem with there's a little bit of a problem with that experiment still but um it looks like both night flying and day flying visitors both contribute to pollination. Nice. 
I love that though, because I mean, sorry, it can be frustrating as a scientist, especially when you're trying to get students jazzed about all hours worth of work. But it also just lends this idea that A, nothing's ever simple in ecology and B, there's a reason these species are different species. Something else is going on. They're following different evolutionary trajectories and have different ecological strategies. And to me, if you just kind of scrape away the work part of it and come back to just loving natural history, I just, that's so endearing to me. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I feel exactly the same way. You know, it was was such a, it was such a, a delightfully humbling experience (laughs) because, you know, I just, I was like, Oh, I bet I know what's going on. And I waltzed in there. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I, I, I'm sure I'm just, you know, going to find like moth wing pollination and that it'll be specialized. Just like, and of course I was totally wrong. And it's like, (laughs) of course I'm wrong. (laughs) Of course nature works more complicated and more beautifully than that. I to think that I might know what was going on here just because I, you know, <laughs> uh, we've just because we'd figured something out in this other species. Like we still, we don't know anything. <laughs> Every plant is beautifully different. And again, it's time spent with azaleas, which is never wasted time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's so good. And, and it's funny because I've gotten around a few azalea experts, uh, you know, some professional, some hobbyist, but everyone's got a different take on viscosum. It's one species. Oh. If you ask some, it's seven species. If you ask another, but when you think about what you just described in the pollination ecology of a generalist, well, you start thinking about different suites of insects in different regions of the world. How far can any one of them really take pollen in any given day? Maybe there's just a lot of local adaptation of whatever's available. Yeah, absolutely. And actually your mention of, of the taxonomic challenges <laughs> of rhododendron viscosum is, is, quite on point because I tend to refer to it as rhododendron viscosum um, because that is what we most think it is. Fair. But so, you know, I'd been working on this plant for a couple seasons and, uh, you know, calling it rhododendron viscosum, there's herbarium material up at Mountain Lake collected from that population that was identified by one of the premier azalea specialists as rhododendron viscosum. <laughs> and then one summer, uh, I was at the station when a botanist, um, Emily Gillespie came up to teach the botany course at mountain Lake and she's done work on azaleas. And so we were hanging out and she's like, Oh yeah, this, this rhododendron arborescence is awesome. Like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> what rhododendron arborescence? I've been wanting to see that species. Um, Uh-oh. And so she had keyed it out to arborescence. And interestingly, I had keyed it out also to arborescence, but then huh. way back when, but then I learned, you know, talked to friends who were working on the herbarium there and looked at the herbarium sam- specimens and it was you know, identified as, as viscosum by the expert. Right. Right. And so, but you know, keys, they just choose random little characters and there's lots of problems with keys, but it was so funny because Emily then keyed out, used 
I forget who the expert was. It might've been Judd. Um, but anyway, she keyed out the plant using the expert's key and it took her to arborescence, which is not what the, that same expert identified it as. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some way I feel weirdly validated in my confusion. (laughs) Yeah. And so anyway, it, it appears to have intermediate, this pop, these populations up there appear to have intermediate characteristics. Um, Some of them (laughs) look a little more like viscosum than arborescence, but it's not clear cut. Um, and it may, yeah, it's a weird population. So we don't even really know what species we're working with is the bottom line, yeah. much less what really is pollinating it. <laughs> I don't think your population's alone. I have seen collections all growing side by side from various areas of Eastern North America. And I mean, I'm by no means a botanist in that regard, but I would have called them each their own thing. But who am I? <laughs> right. So. I, again, they're keeping us guessing. They don't read our keys. They don't read our books. They don't care what we write about them. They're just doing what they're doing out there. And and it's great that regardless of what the name is on it, you now know a little bit more about that population as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, it's just these constant reminders of, okay, we think we know something. Hmm. We scientists like to put, or humans like to put things in neat little boxes, and that's just not the way nature works. Nope. (laughs) But it's also (laughs) fun. It's what we jokingly call job security, if there's ever something like that. Uh, But, you know, again, we get into this because we're curious, not because we want to be bored. And uh, nature delivers time and time again. Yep, that it does. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And so obviously always more work to be done, but what are you most excited about in the coming years when it comes to thinking about azaleas pollination or really just anything as a generalist ecologist? Where is your interest taking you? Oh boy. As as far as my interest as a generalist ecologist, as a generalist ecologist, it's terribly all over the map. All the things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, ooh, and plant interactions. I want to work on those and uh, all too many things. Uh, But as far as things related to this project goes, so I've been uh, doing more work with lilies the last couple of summers. And I'm just really interested in trying to learn more about the biology of wing mediated pollination by butterflies. Um, Because this was basically an overlooked, pretty much overlooked mode of of pollination for a long time. And again, trying to relate that to floral morphology in key ways to try to see, okay, are there floral morphologies that we might predict would be associated with wing pollination, such as that clear landing platform and long exerted flower parts, as well as thinking about from the butterfly end of things, well, what behaviors of the butterflies make for more effective pollination services in wing pollinated plants? Nice. And so that was one thing that we just looked at very briefly in the initial flame azalea paper, which there we really just saw two big butterfly species 
visiting the flowers at our field site. Um, again, I'm sure at other populations, there are lots more. Hmm. Um, but we started wondering, okay, do these two butterfly species differ in their effectiveness as pollinators? Hmm. So when we observed the butterflies, um, we tried to document, well, how frequently are these butterflies making contact with the anthers and stigmas as a function of butterfly species? So is one species making contact with the anthers and stigmas more frequently um, in a given visit compared to the other species? And what we found was that the Eastern tiger swallowtail was vastly more efficient as a pollinator compared to the other species that we saw, the great spangled fritillary. And our hypothesis for this was that it had to do with the flapping rate of the butterfly's wings. Hmm. Um, Because the great spangled fritillary tended to land on a flower and really not move its wings much, except when first arriving at or leaving a flower. Whereas the tiger swallowtail just was kind of flapping around all the time as it was drinking nectar. And, you know, we didn't actually quantify the flapping rate in Mm. that case. It was just, you know, we documented the great difference in pollinator effectiveness and sort of this behavior. And we said, hey, this is, you know, this seems like it's likely the cause. But Mm. one of the things that I want to do now is uh, with lilies, um, as well as with azaleas, is looking at areas with more diverse butterfly faunas and actually measuring flapping rate and, or trying to, that's (laughs) hard to figure out how to do that accurately, but I think we can do it. Yeah, Um, I believe in you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But measuring flapping rate and trying to evaluate, okay, how does pollinator effectiveness vary with the sort of typical flapping rate of a a given butterfly species. So the hypothesis would be that the butterfly species that flap a lot are the most effective Hmm. at transferring pollen by their wings, whereas the butterflies that don't flap much are the least effective at wing-mediated pollination. That's the hypothesis. Um, We have some very preliminary evidence, but... um, Fascinating. (laughs) <laughs> I love it, though, because we just spent all this time talking about the plant side of things, right? This is a plant podcast. Very biased. I'm happy to admit that. But all of this can also be carved out on the insect side of things as well. And that's the beautiful thing about interactions is that, yeah, you think you figure out one part of one side of it. Okay, what's going on on the other? I love that. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, there's there's so much to learn on both sides. And, yeah, these these interactions, it... it it takes two or it takes many, right? Yeah, right. And so they're different stories to be discovered relating to all sides of that interaction. Amazing. Well, Dr. Epps, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk to us about, you know, a fraction of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. This is amazing. You're doing incredible work. You're doing really important work to understand organisms, but also promoting it. You're, you, you just... The excitement is contagious, and I think everyone listening will thank you for that. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's such a treat to talk to you about this. Oh, and, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I hope I hope some of the listeners will go out and stare at plants a little more than they were already, yeah. although we 
probably your listeners are probably staring at. Yeah, they're they're doing a pretty good job at it. But if they know how to measure <laughs> butterfly flapping rates, uh, there you go. They should they should uh, send me a note. <laughs> so with that in mind, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work or reach out or find out more about everything you and your students are doing, where do you recommend they go looking? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't have a website. <laughs> I mean, the school kind of does, right? Yeah, you're the on there. The school kind of does, but there's not a whole lot on that page. Um, so you give me an email. All right, cool. I'll put your email up in the show <laughs> notes. No, it's quite all right. Everyone has their own way, and I appreciate that. So, yeah, I can put up your email, and that way people can find it. And, uh, yeah, hopefully some good great. collaborations or insights come from it. Yeah, I hope so. That 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 sounds great. But yeah, it was such a pleasure to to talk with you about this. Oh, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for helping me appreciate even more this amazing group of plants and and butterflies as a result. I really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. All right. How remarkable is that? It just goes to show you that some of the most charismatic and well-loved group of plants have more unknowns in their natural history than knowns, and they are just begging for more attention. I thank Dr. Epps for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I hope she inspired you to take a look at some of the underappreciated life living around you. You never know what you're going to find. Of course, all the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode, so go check it out over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, consider supporting the show because I could not be doing this show without the support of people like my patrons over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. They make the show possible, so go check that out. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers, and all of those links are at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast as well. But that is it for me this week. I hope you're enjoying the show. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.